Friends, please be seated, and it would be helpful if you turn back to the psalm. I think it's on page 9, that really, really long psalm, Psalm 107. And uh, this psalm that we're looking at this morning is all about God's love. Um, A.W. Tozer is a famous writer, pastor. A.W. Tozer said, uh, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if that's true, then it's also true that what comes to your mind when you think about God's love is very close to the most important thing about you. Um, But here's the problem. So almost everybody I know who likes to talk about God in any respect, almost everybody I know who likes to talk about God is happy to talk about God as a loving God. Everybody wants God to be loving. Uh, However, here's the problem. Understanding the love of God is one of the most important things in the Christian life. You can't understand Christianity without it. But on the other hand, understanding the love of God is one of the most difficult things for us to grasp. It's super important, but very difficult to grasp. Why is it difficult to grasp? One of the reasons is this. Very often, when we think about the love of God, we sort of impose on that. We assume that what God means when God says love is very similar to what we say when we say love in our hearts or when we experience love. So very often what we do is we take our experience about love, which is a good news, bad news joke in most of our lives. Isn't that true? Most of us have uh, our highest, our greatest joy in life is all wrapped up in our experience of love, but also our deepest sorrow is wrapped up in love that has been taken away from us. But very often what we do is we take our experience of love and then we say, well, God's love must be quite a lot like that. And so we take our experience of love, make it big, put it on God, and we think that we understand God's love. The problem is God's love is very, very different from ours. So here's what I want to do today. I want to look at Psalm 107, this very large psalm. This, it's a celebration of the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. What I want to do is I want to look at this psalm and allow this psalm to reshape what it is that comes to our mind when we think about God's love. Let it redefine our understanding of love so that when we look at God's love, we can see some of the ways that it's different from our own and so that we can see its true beauty. What's God's love like? What is it like, number one? Number two, how do we respond? All right? Okay. Um, What is God's love like? I want to show you three characteristics of God's love from Psalm 107. uh, And they're all a bit surprising. What Psalm 107 does is it tells us these four stories. Did you catch those as we read through it? Did you notice that there are these four stories about how God's love breaks into people's lives? And as you look at those four stories, you'll see at least three characteristics that we need to point out. Here's the first one. The first characteristic I want to show you is this. God's love specifically targets apparently hopeless situations. God's love uh, specifically targets hopeless situations. Take a look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the first part of the first story in Psalm 107. Take a look at it. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Okay, keep that in mind. Now skip over to verse 10, the beginning of the second story. 
Look at this image. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God, and they had spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor, and they fell down with no one to help. Keep that image in your mind and skip to verse 17, the third story. Some were fools through their own sinful ways, and because of their own iniquities, they suffered affliction, and they loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Okay, do you see a pattern there? All of these situations are meant to describe an apparently hopeless scenario. So the first story, um, these people are, are hopelessly lost and hungry and homeless. They're in the desert. They don't know where they're at. They don't even know which way is north. They don't have a map. They don't have a road. They don't have any place, any way to get to uh, refuge. They're, it's hopeless. Second story. The second story is the image of imprisonment and incarceration. These people, for whatever reason, they've done things that they're guilty. They have been... Uh, put in prison, they've been incarcerated, they've been uh, sentenced to hard labor. There is no advocate for these people. There's no help. It's, help. it's hopeless. Third story. I don't know all the details, but somehow these people have made choices that led them to a place where perhaps they're addicted, we're not exactly sure, but their bodies are deteriorating. They don't even want to eat, and they're coming close to the gates of death. It's a hopeless scenario. Now, the point is, all three of these first stories are stories that you look at it, and from the outside, you look at it, and you think, you know what, there's no hope. There's no hope. I can't see any way to help these people. There's no hope. And by the way, it's interesting. These first three stories, they're not too far off from contemporary problems. You think about the refugee crisis. You think about mass incarceration. You think about the opioid epidemic. All of these problems are problems that face us today and that we look at and it's like, what are we going to do? How are we going to help these people? What can we do? It's hopeless. It feels hopeless, is it? All right, here's the deal. And this is the good news. Psalm 107 paints these pictures not to bring us to a place of hopelessness, but to say God's love particularly targets these kinds of apparently hopeless situations. Now, to kind of get into this just a little bit with me, um, do a thought experiment with me. For just, just imagine, okay? You ready to imagine? Come on. Okay, you're with me, kind of. I want you to imagine, and this is going to be really fun, this is going to be lots of fun, imagine you're in a hopeless situation. Imagine your life has deteriorated somehow, I don't know how. Your life has deteriorated to such a point that you can't see any way back to good. Or imagine that your public life is doing fine. Your public life is fine. Everybody thinks you're great. But imagine that you know an area of your life that no one else knows about, that's secret. But you know that if that became public, it would ruin everything. And you feel trapped, and you feel helpless, and you feel hopeless, and you don't see any way to get out of it. Okay. Imagine you're there, and let me ask you a weird question. 
Do you feel lovable there? My guess is that most of us, if we're in that place where either secretly we feel hopeless or publicly we feel hopeless, in that place we do not feel particularly lovable. And part of the reason why most of us won't feel lovable is that most of us have spent most of our lives imagining that people love us because there's something lovable and attractive in us, right? Most of us uh, assume, and this is the way we treat other people, is that we, we look at somebody else and we see something attractive in them, and therefore we, we're attracted to them, we start loving them. But we also know that if people see something not attractive in us, the terrible fear is that they're just going to be repelled and, and they're not going to love us. And so when we are knee deep in the muck of our hopelessness, we interpret that experience to mean, well, I'm not lovable by anybody, including God. Now, go back to Psalm 107, though. Because this is where you begin to see how God's love works differently than what we expect. God's love is different than ours. God's love doesn't wait until God finds something attractive and beautiful in the person he chooses to love. Rather, God's love is preemptive. God's love goes before there's something lovable. God's love takes the first move and reaches out right into unlovable situations and particularly pours out his affection there. And that's why God's love is so uniquely hopeful. Do you believe that? That's the first characteristic. God's love specializes in hopeless situations. Second characteristic, however, is that God's love shows us our need for him and our urgent need for him. Now, this one's a little less straightforward. Turn over to the fourth story, verse 23. This is the one about the ships. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. And they saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. And their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and they staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Now, this story is a little bit different. You know how this story is a little bit different? In the previous stories, at least two of the previous stories, um, the people clearly got themselves into their own mess, right? They, they made silly decisions, and their silly decisions led them into uh, a terrible place. But this story is a little bit different. Do you notice that? These folks didn't do anything wrong. Uh, they're professionals, they're sailors, they're merchants, they're competent, they know what they're doing on the seas, and their competence and their skill, I'm sure, made them feel secure and confident. But then, God brings them right to the end of their competence. God stirs up a storm, and that storm brings them to their wit's end. It extends beyond their skill level, and they're good at what they do. They're beaten within their own profession. And my question is, why would God do that? Why would God purposefully increase the distress of skillful, competent professionals? Doesn't that cause, does that sound loving? 
me give you just a quick illustration. Um, years ago, before I uh, became a pastor, um, I, you know, some of you know this, I spent time uh, working in banks and mortgage companies. Um, and I worked in a mortgage company right when, in the early 2000s, right where it was just wild. Like, we just made tons of money. I didn't make tons of money. But the company made tons. You know how it works. Um, the company made tons of money. And one night, so much money we didn't know what to do with it. One night, we, we rented out an entire uh, ice hockey arena in Southern California just to throw a party. And millions of dollars were dropped just because we were bored. Um, and in that moment, we felt secure. We thought we were quite good at what we were doing, frankly. Thank you. And otherwise, we wouldn't have spent that money. Um, five years later, the company didn't exist. And we found out that the whole thing was a delusion. The whole thing was a delusion. We felt competent, but we weren't. The whole thing was a delusion, and we uh, inadvertently, inadvertently participated in, uh, in causing distress for millions and millions of people around the world through what our industry did. Here's the point. Competence is a good thing. Delusional competence is cruel. And that explains some of what God is doing here. God brings these sailors to the end of their own competence to show them reality, to, to wake them up from the numbing effect of their own amazing skill. And he does that so that they can see the peril of self-reliance and therefore cry out to God for deliverance. I've made this point before, but it's very important. There is a certain type of security that must be broken in the lives of highly competent people so that you can find greater security in God alone. And sometimes the most loving thing that God can do is to bring us right to the edge of our competence and beyond it. Because God's highest aim for us is not our comfort, it's our eternal rescue. So, the first characteristic of God's love is that it specializes in hopeless situations. The second characteristic, however, is that part of what God's love does, or part of the way you know God's love is working in your life, is he's driving you to a place of saying, I need God. Here's the third. God's love rescues people with an almost furious power. Look, look back at the text. Look at the imagery of God's power and love rescuing people. Look at verse 28, okay? Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. Do you remember that story from Jesus? Do you remember that story? The boat going crazy? Jesus said, shh. And, it, and they did? Anyways. He made the storm be, storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad that the waters were quiet. I bet they were. And he brought them to their desired haven. Now, what did the sailors learn? You know what the sailors learned? They, the power of God's love is more strong than the waves that frightened them. That's a pretty good lesson to learn. Or look over at verse 16. The prisoners. You remember the prisoners? They're incarcerated. They got themselves into the mess, right? You know what they found out? They found out that God's power, God's love, is more powerful 
than the bars that held them in jail. Look at verse 16. For the Lord shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Do you see the imagery there? He looks at the raging storm and in his love he says, quiet, and it is. And then he looks at the bars that hold the prisoners and he says, open, and they do. What is it that comes to your mind when you think about God's love? It's one of the most important things about you. And for a lot of people, when you think about God's love, you think about something quaint and quiet and polite and maybe weak. And I know you'll never say it that way, but isn't that the sneaking suspicion in your heart when you think about a warm and fuzzy God's love thing? That's not what God's love is like. It's the most potent reality in the universe. At least that's the claim of Psalm 107. And if for Christians, we see Psalm 107 claiming that God's love is the most powerful reality in the universe. But you know when we find it actually plays out and we find it proved to be true? It's when we look at Jesus. Because Jesus is God's love in person. And when Jesus comes, he explores, in his lifetime, he explores all these scenarios of hopelessness. Did you, did you catch that? Do you remember the, the first story, the story of, of, of these people, they're exiles in the middle of the desert and they don't know where to go and they don't have a home. Jesus was an exile and a refugee as a child. And when he grew up, he said, even when I'm grown up, the son of man has nowhere to lay my head. He was homeless. Or you think about the second story, the hopelessness of incarceration. You ever been incarcerated? Maybe you have. Jesus has. He was incarcerated. And he was beaten and brutalized. And Jesus, I already mentioned, Jesus knew what it was to see all the, the, the natural power of the waves of the sea brushing over his boat. He went through all of that, but then when he hung upon the cross, when he hung upon the cross, it was like he came close to the gates of death, just like those in the third story. He came close to the gates of death, and he, he was thirsty, but he didn't quench his thirst. But then he kept on going, and he went through the gates of death. And when Jesus died upon the cross, that was God targeting our worst, deepest, most hopeless hopelessness that there is. He reached into death itself. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the total power of God's love was released because death itself was crushed under the feet of Christ. Friends, nothing in the world is more powerful than God's love. Psalm 107 claims it. The cross of Christ demonstrates it and proves it for you. That's what God's love's like. How do we respond? Psalm 107 gives us two things. We pray and we praise. First of all, we pray. Uh, look, if you look at the four stories of Psalm 107, they all have a similar turning point. Take a look at verse 6. Verse 6. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Listen to those words. Skip to verse 13. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. Sound similar? 
Look at verse 19. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. Getting the picture? Verse 28. Let's say it together, everybody. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. Repetition is for emphasis. Prayer precedes rescue. And prayer, friends, is what, God, is what it looks like when we deeply trust in God's love, when we are in the midst of what apparently feels hopelessness and we no longer interpret it to mean that God doesn't love us, but rather we interpret it to be the occasion where God will show his power and his love. And therefore we say, Lord Jesus Christ, break into this area of my hopelessness, wherever that may be, and show me your love and your power and your mercy and your grace, and I will praise you for all eternity. Emmanuel, what would it look like if we learned to pray with a courage that matched the power of God's love and with an urgency that matched the depth of our real need? I sometimes fear we pray little. But that only is appropriate for a little God or for a little need. And we've got big on both. So we pray. Secondly, we praise. In each of the four stories in Psalm 107, the story begins in hopelessness. And you know what it ends? It ends singing. Did you know if you're a Christian, singing is the way your story ends? You will sing for all eternity when you see the magnificence of God's love. The main response to God's love is to rejoice and to give thanks and to praise him for his goodness. It's the soundtrack of a Christian who's really fully alive. And once you really taste the Lord's enduring love, we said earlier, taste and see that the Lord is good. Later on, we get to literally taste and see that the Lord is good. Once you taste the Lord, you'll never get tired of praising him. And so I want to ask you, one of the ways you can diagnose the health of your soul is this. Are you bored in praising God? Because if praising the Lord and thanking the Lord for his mercy and his grace, if that falls flat for you, then it, it could mean one of two things. It, it, it could mean that you're not yet a Christian. And if that's the case, there's good news. If that's the case, the Lord Jesus Christ looks at you and he says, all four of these stories can be your story. And Jesus looks at you. He looks at you in your eyes and he says, I gave my life to save you eternally. Won't you let me? And for others of us, we've, we've, we are Christians. We've walked with Christ for a little while, but for whatever reason, the concerns of the world or just the anxieties of our heart, have meant that we've just grown cold. And if that's where you're at, then you need to hear, Christian, the Lord's love is your birthright. Don't live starved. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says... Jesus satisfies the longing soul. Well, it says the Lord satisfies the longing soul, but for us, Christ satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul, he fills with good things. Are you hungry? If you're a human, you're hungry. 
we're all hungry. We're hungry for love. That's why we desire love. That's why we celebrate love in all its forms. It's also why we're so hurt by it. Because most of the love we experience in this world just falls flat. It's temporary. It doesn't endure forever. It lasts for a little while. And all human loves will eventually end, at least in death. But here's a love that satisfies. Here's the love that is actually the, the love that your soul was designed for. And it's on offer. And it satisfies. And when you taste the satisfying love of God, you will breathe out hallelujahs. You will breathe out praise the Lord. You will breathe out, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Amen? Amen.